The interview you're about to hear was originally published on the Superhumanize podcast. Gateway Sciences, leading the human race to inner space. Welcome to the Gateway Sessions podcast, where we discuss the science of psychedelics, mental health, optimal human wellness, longevity, cutting-edge nutrition, and more science-based tools for improving your life. I'm Ariana Summer, and I'm the Global Innovation and Research Leader for Gateway Sciences. Nick, so great to be with you today. Thank you for making time for us today. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. You know, I am really excited to speak with you today, amongst others, because you exemplify what a peak performer is. And you have been successful in many, many different areas and endeavors, and all of which require a superior physical and also mental functioning. Uh, You're a former active duty Navy SEAL. Um, You have uh, been a ground force commander. Uh, You've also been a combat advisor in both Iraq and Afghanistan. You're a rock climber. You've done ultra running uh, and excelled also in other high performance sports. And in addition, you are an entrepreneur. You're the co-founder and CEO of Protect Products. And what personally resonated with me very much is you speak very openly also about overcoming challenges after leaving the military, uh, such as depression. And you also actively uh, support uh, Navy duty SEALs and their families. You're the executive director of the C4 Foundation. And I want to dissect all these different areas of your life and (laughs) how they're connected and also how they inform each other. Um, I'd like to jump in from the point where you decided to become a Navy SEAL. Was there an inciting moment in your life that inspired <laughs> that decision? I think it was just a uh, a very good friend of mine that brought the concept of going into the military up in a conversation with me. And, I, and we probably were in seventh grade at the time. Uh, I had always been... I'd always been a a hard worker, very disciplined. Uh, My dad taught me to work out and apply yourself and and just be disciplined in in kind of physical fitness my entire life. And uh, the conversation with that good friend was namely about elite organizations in the military and like kind of what's the toughest thing to, to, to do in the military and the SEAL teams came up and I think at the time I just I looked at it as a a personal challenge, something that I could apply myself towards uh, achieving, without necessarily having uh, the natural uh, the natural abilities that are required to be, let's say, a professional athlete like playing football or baseball or basketball. I knew that I could be a seal if I just applied myself diligently, and to mental toughness and to physical fitness. And, uh, and just not quit. So it seemed like something within my grasp. And at that point, I, I was gung-ho about, about going down that path. That's quite a feat, though, seventh grade, because we're talking you were 12, 13 years old, and that's when you sure. set your mind to that? Yeah, yeah, kind of crazy. I, uh, <laughs> I, I think back at it now, and I'm like, yeah, you know, I guess that was a little bit uh, audacious. It didn't seem that way at the time. It just seemed like, hey, you know, it's something really interesting and cool that I wanted to do. And uh, 
I just, you know, I latched onto it. You know, it's, it was just something that I was super passionate about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I tend, tend to feel like you just find those things, you know, like the, you, know, pa- you can't force passion. It just arises from something inside of us and you latch onto it and you don't want to let go. And, and being a SEAL was one of those things early in my life that you know, really came into focus. And uh, I think it would be fair to say, you know, having a passion for something is one thing, but following through with this goal setting is a whole other animal. You know, some people have great uh, dreams, but without following through, they, you know, they could just remain that dreams, um, but Mm -hmm. to actually go for a vision. So you always had this, this was instilled to you, I guess, by your father, you just mentioned just, just working towards yeah. a goal. Yeah. Yeah. Working towards a goal. You know, my dad definitely was an inspiration in that capacity. Uh, I, the other thing though, was I, I had a lot of people along the way, you know, whether they actively doubted me, like, you know, confronted me uh, about how it was an impossibility for me to accomplish that goal, or it was just people that I could tell, doubted me, but they didn't have the guts, I guess, to say it to my face. They just kind of played it off as like kind of a, oh, that's that's cute that you want to do that. I bet you won't do it. You know, you can just tell people's body language and the way that they interact with you in conversation. And I, I'd say like that was a big part of it for me. Like I I like when people challenge me uh, or mm-hmm. tell me that I can't do something and it, and it fires me up. So I, it's probably what's going to push me down this path towards entrepreneurship. I, I just... I know that most people fail. Actually, the you know ninety nine percent of you know startups fail, uh, but it's you know it's your ability to get back up after failing repeatedly, and be able to stay in control of your own mind and and continue to push forward and make progress. Right, and what you just mentioned is so crucial. You know, most of us, I certainly have been guilty of this in the past when somebody puts a mental or emotional roadblock in our way by not just by not supporting us, but by letting us know that whatever we have in mind is impossible and belittling us. Uh, for a lot of us, that takes away of our determination. Are there certain mm-hmm. things? It sounds like you have just been born wired this way in your brain, but are there certain uh, things that are helpful, you know, for people who are still dealing with this? So to not let that kind of an attitude chip away at your own determination? Yeah, I mean, easier said than done. I mean, I think it's been a lifelong practice. And I've definitely not been uh, the best at it my entire life. I never want to put put that idea in people's heads. I, I struggled with being fearful of people's judgment because that's really what it is. And I think recently I've gotten better at not allowing people's judgment to impact my actions and my frame of mind, knowing that, you know, most people are judging because they're struggling with some of those, the the things that they're judging themselves and just being comfortable, you know, being, be, being comfortable being judged, which is, uh, you know, definitely easier said than done. But I, I've definitely focused on you know, controlling my own thoughts and my own actions um, and not letting other people's thoughts and actions, you know, really cloud my ability to succeed. So, you know, what's interesting to me talking about um, SEAL, SEAL teams, uh, is we're obviously talking about some of the absolutely most highly trained teams on the planet. And how do you actually qualify 
to get into the SEAL training pipeline. It's not like you can just decide, uh, I'm going to do this, right? There is a, a selection process. Yeah, so you have to go through a, a basic physical test uh, to get into the pipeline. I, I would say it's not as difficult as some people think. I mean, the entry, uh, you know, obviously you join the military, you you sign up specifically to to go to basic underwater demolition seal training, and then there's there's certain wickets in push ups, sit ups, pull ups, uh, your uh, mile and a half timed run, and then a 500 uh, yard swim, and the the times aren't incredibly difficult and the repetitions aren't incredibly difficult to achieve. Uh, but it gives, it basically just shows that you have a baseline of fitness to be able to go through and, and I'd say complete an evolution or a day, uh, during buds training. I, I think that's what it tests for. Uh, the, the tougher part is when you actually get into training and you have to deal with the, the grind of day in, day out, uh, arduous physical activity with limited time to recover and, and really kind of that, the mental strain of, mm. of things like the cold, being immersed in cold water, being stressed, uh, you know, being judged, <laughs> uh, repeatedly by your cadre and by your peers and, and yourself. So, uh, the, the entry point may be easier to obtain than the actual fulfillment of the goal, which, which takes, mm. you know, a year, a year to two years, depending on who you are and, and what you're doing in the, in the pipeline. Superhumanize. The goal is actually not a sprint. It's a marathon, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, you also in preparation for, uh, buds, you, uh, immerse yourself or you already were actively, um, immersed in ultra running, right? I did that. Yeah. So at the Naval Academy, I decided to start ultra running as a training method for adventure racing. Mm -hmm. So I, I got really into uh, adventure racing, which is basically multi-sport uh, map and compass off-road competitions where, you know, you race with a team, uh, you know, depending on the length of the race, it could be anywhere from, you know, a six hour race all the way up to like a seven day race. Like you've seen an eco challenge the ability to endure sleep deprivation and suffer and having to navigate at night and do stuff that's a little bit uncertain uh, was very appealing to me. So I, I was ultra running necessarily just to focus on getting better at adventure racing. Of right. all things. You're, you're probably also familiar with uh, Rich Roll, uh, ultra athlete. Yes. Yes. There, it takes a, a certain type of mindset to actually be able to endure, literally endure this. Um, and speaking about enduring, you already mentioned some of it, you know, with the uh, cold water exposure and such. But were there any specific aspects of your training that beforehand you may have had trepidation about um, and that turned out to be really challenging as you thought? Or were there others that surprised you that really challenged you more? Yeah, well, for sure. So I expected it to be cold. Um, I mean, that was definitely challenging for me. I'm a little person, and so I I get cold rather easily. But uh, I guess one thing that I went into, you know, I, I went into training as a, I, I call myself a mediocre swimmer. You know, I was a wrestler in high school. Uh, I was a substandard lifeguard. You know, people would laugh. I like actually started lifeguarding as a high schooler in Chicago. And I, uh, I wasn't the best swimmer in the world. I mean, I, I trained and like, I did my best, but I just wasn't like 
very, uh, uh, I guess, like water dynamic, hydrodynamic uh, in the water. So I, I use a lot more energy than I, I probably uh, needed to. And I went into SEAL training thinking that I was going to struggle deeply uh, on the swimming sections, you know, the two and a half or the two nautical mile ocean swims you do every week in training. I wasn't that great of a swimmer slick without fins, but the second that I was able to swim with fins, which ended up being like 90, I'd say like 98% of the, of the pipeline was all fin swimming. I, I actually was really good at that. Uh, I think just because all I had to do was like kick really hard and like follow the swim buddy that I had who was a really good swimmer. So it was all about kind of grit and physical output and not necessarily the technique that uh, some other people came into the pipeline with. Right. And speaking about grit, perseverance, uh, I think that also is a large part of successful undergoing the type of training you have done, which um, a lot of it consists in immersing the individuals into a really high stress environment. And that's also constantly changing in order mm -hmm. to actually make them high performance within that environment. Uh, can you talk a little bit about this and um, maybe also mention some techniques that are used to make the brain and body get used to overcoming this uncertainty and stress? Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, we excel in that environment as, as seals, I think as, you know, special operations uh, individuals as a whole. And I think a lot of the excellence comes through stress inoculation You know, we're, we're, cr I'd say chronically exposed to stress. Like our training cycles, in my personal opinion, are more stressful in a lot of ways than actual combat. And mm -hmm. that, at least in my experience, and I've spoke on this before, you know, some of the most stressful periods in my time as a SEAL were during training because I was so concerned about my reputation, how I was perceived by others that I respected how I was being judged and critiqued by those putting me through training. Like that mattered so much to me that I, I would put a tremendous amount of pressure on myself and, and, you know, pressure and stress will help you perform at an optimal level as long as you don't get overwhelmed by it. And I think that that constant, that continual exposure helped to uh, make me more comfortable. I mean, it, in, a, in essence, it inoculated me to the shock of stress and the shock of uncertainty where when I went into a combat zone and I was leading operations where lives were at stake, you know, I was, I was already used to performing in a high stress environment. And in a, in a way it was easier because I'd already been through a lot of the things that I was experiencing and, and it was easier in combat because we didn't have as many problems uh, surfaced. You know, it was frequently you would be thrown problems like repeatedly during training in order to really test your resolve and test your ability to, to pivot uh, during the course of a plan. So I think the preparation, I mean, there's, I guess there's no easy answer, right? People are always looking for like that magic solution that's going to inoculate you to stress. But unfortunately, like everything else in life, experience is mm -hmm. the only thing that really helps. And I think we do a really good job of giving guys the experience to be able to perform when, when it actually matters. And what part does failure play in success? I mean, it's a huge part of, of success. I mean, I, I know a lot of people will speak uh, on that topic and, and point to the fact that failure is important. Well, you know, I failed a lot in training, you know, and, and the, biggest, uh, the, the biggest takeaway, 
And the thing that that was hammered into me is that it's okay to fail. We actually want to fail quickly so we can learn from our mistakes, but we're expected not to make the same mistake twice. You know, if you're not, if you're making the same mistake twice, you're not learning from the experience. And, and that was the only thing that was asked of us as a SEAL in a training pipeline was to learn from every mistake that you make, focus on it. You know, we were, we relentlessly debriefed after training evolutions, after combat operations, it didn't matter if nothing happened uh, of substance on an operation, you would still dissect the operation from start to finish and, and really point out anything that didn't go optimally. And just because nothing went wrong, uh, doesn't mean that you did it perfect. I mean, really, the only reason people would find out that you didn't do it perfect is if something terrible happened and your weakness was exposed. So we like to expose our weaknesses to each other all the time. So we were prepped for that situation that was going to test us. Mm, yeah, uh, that is uh, that is really profound to expose your weaknesses constantly because most of us actually don't like doing that, but it's crucial to look at them. And even within a scenario where nothing terrible happened, because that's what you want to avoid. And I also like what you said about failing quickly. Uh, I think many people are, first of all, are, you know, used to repeating mistakes. Uh, they don't step outside of the box within which they failed. And also a lot of people fail for a very long and painful time <laughs> <laughs> instead of just, you know, cutting the losses, learning move, and moving on. We tend to hold on to things. You know, it's also why in the casino, for example, a lot of people will put more, lose more money and more money and more money. You fail longer. Yeah. 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 Keep failing, right? Not learning that lesson. Yeah. I mean, I, it, it's actually very interesting having this conversation. It, it's often, it often illuminates things uh, about me that I necess that wasn't necessarily attuned to. And, you know, the, I, I'm thinking about like my ability to be vulnerable now kind of post transition. I, in a way, I've never even really thought of it this like this, but I, I was, <laughs> I was used to being vulnerable in kind of a tactical sense. Like I, it just like I shared, I, I was continually exposing my own weaknesses and I was in a, in a culture that demanded that you expose your weaknesses in order to learn from those weaknesses. So I think I, I built some pretty thick skin and I was, I was okay with exposing those weaknesses because, you know, the only thing that you could really do wrong in the SEAL teams was hide your weaknesses, hide your mistakes and not take ownership and accountability. Mm -hmm. And I, I think if anything, I learned how to be very accountable for my mistakes, uh, my indiscretions and, um, you know, really learn that it, it's okay to make, everybody's going to make mistakes. It's okay to do that. As long as you own your mistakes, you own your actions, and then you, you move forward in a positive direction. Yeah, what a valuable lesson that is. I wish we would have been taught that in school, uh, that it's just you know, just as the um, default setting to be radically responsible. I, mm -hmm. I honestly think it makes life so much easier and uh, for ourselves, but also for those we love and yeah. I think for, you know, society in general to function. If we all took radical responsibility, that would be a marvelous thing. Well, I, I'll give I'll, I'll give Jocko Willink credit for it. You know, I, I say that often whenever I speak to people about my upbringing in the SEAL teams. Mm -hmm. But you know, he was a, a very significant mentor 
uh, during my time as a junior officer in the teams. And, you know, Jocko has written a book called Extreme Ownership that is uh, pretty much a the mainstay in the corporate world for leadership. And, you know, he, he hammered that home. Um, you know, I think a lot of us, you know, have an, that innate accountability, but he, he really highlighted the importance of that and, you know, kind of a lot of sim- very simple things that you can put into play to be an effective leader. So I, I, I got to give him a shout out anytime we're talking leadership because he's, he's definitely the guy that helped me grow uh, as a leader tremendously. Superhumanize. I respect the guy and also love him for personal reasons. He wrote the foreword and also uh, published a book of a dear friend of mine. She's a war reporter, Holly McKay, uh, about her time in in, on the grounds in Iraq. I spoke with her on the podcast uh, a few weeks ago as well. So, yeah, he's an amazing human being, a real role model uh, for leadership. And, uh, you know, for you also as a former uh, team leader, what are the traits that really high performance, high end teams have? Responsibility, obviously, is one of them. Yeah, I mean, I always point to humility you know, I, I've said it on several different podcasts, but, you know, humility was something that was a critical characteristic in those leaders that I respected. And it's something that I, I truly worked at every single day to embody. And I, and I still do, you know, I, I still consider humility, you know, the most important virtue uh, that mm-hmm. I, I continually am, am working to hone in my life. Um, so I think humility is a big deal because it allows people to to really uh, be okay owning their mistakes, um, knowing that they're not perfect. You know, there's mm-hmm. other people out there that are more competent and more capable because that's always the case. I don't care who you are and, and what you do, you will find somebody that is going to be better than you at some component of, of what you're pursuing. And if you never get into the rut of, of being ego, too egotistical and, and arrogant, thinking that you know everything, you're going to stay in a, a state of perpetual learning, which is, which is you know, something that's so critically important for, for good leaders and, and good teams, is just to always be open to learning new, new things, new ways, new um, you know, methods to pursue the same goal. So I, I think that those things are are critically important for teams to be, you know, high performance teams and successful at whatever they're doing. Right. For good teams, good leaders, and also just in general, good human beings. I find that um, when we can operate with an innate sense of humility, it also leaves us open to surround ourselves and seek out people who are better than us. And thus we can learn and level up ourselves, you know, instead mm-hmm. of just thinking, uh, you know, I'm the best at everything. And then you basically just stay stuck uh, yep. where you are mentally, physically, spiritually for the rest of your life and don't grow. Yeah. I I, lo- I love to be the, uh, uh, the guy, the guy in the room that's, that's learning from everybody else. You know, that's, that's the preferred environment, you know, whether it's in my climbing, uh, in business, uh, or, you know, as you brought up spiritually, you know, be surrounding myself with people that are on a on a path that's maybe a couple steps ahead of me. I think that's important. Yes. And it's exciting. That's just, I, I feel like a sponge. I just love to absorb. This is also why I love doing this podcast because I, <laughs> I get to speak to wonderful, amazing people such, such as yourself. And it's just, I feel like my 
brain grows every time. <laughs> yeah, well, it gives you it gives you a target, right? I mean, yeah. you know, when you when you're at the top, you know, if you feel like you're at the top, you're the pinnacle. You know, you don't have those goals, you don't have those targets, you don't have the role models, uh, you know, to to chase. And mm-hmm. you know, that's what we, we're all looking for for goals. You know, we all love the feeling of accomplishing goals and pursuing something that's that's bigger than us. So, you know, that's that's like an endless lifelong journey. And, yes. you know, everybody, you know, everybody could benefit from just continuing to stay the course and continuing to learn to be better. Yes. And, uh, you know, role models and also different roles in our life. Um, when I listened to some of the other podcasts you did and researched you, uh, what I also mentioned before, I really loved how open and vulnerable you were about some uh, challenging times in your life. Uh, when when you ended your military career and transitioned into the private sector, how mm-hmm. was that for you? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I didn't think it was terrible at the time. I think in retrospect, I realized that I was uh, allowing allowing this, uh, I guess, repurposing of myself to be all-consuming. I was I was really trying to prove that I could do something else in the world outside of being a, a, a Navy SEAL, and I poured myself into that transition into and into that kind of new job, new role, and. Uh, lost focus uh, tremendously of, you know, the things that were important to me that drove me out of the military to start with. Uh, first and foremost, my family, you know, I, I had, you know, talk, I've, I've talked about my wife while I was on active duty kind of being in a second position. And that's no ding against my wife. My wife is a wonderful woman. I love her deeply. But in the pursuit of what I was doing as a SEAL, and specifically at the time that I was a SEAL going into combat, you know, she understood that I needed to, to put that job and, and, you know, kind of the, the role that I played overseas as the number one thing I'm focused on. And I left the military because I wasn't able to fully pour myself into my marriage and into, you know, my, my daughter's life is, you know, we, my wife was pregnant right before I decided to transition and, I transitioned and I, you know, for a long time, I think I was lost. I was, I was away from my wife, away from my daughter, uh, as much or more than I probably would have been if I just stayed on active duty, um, trying to reinvent myself and trying to fill this void that was created when I left the SEAL teams, not realizing that, you know, my, my new purpose and my new priority should be my family. You know, it's to pour myself into those loving relationships because those people like my wife and my children are going to be with me till the day that I die. And, uh, yeah, so I, I, I was lost, you know, for, for a while and it, and it took some deep introspection and, and hitting a pretty low point in my life to, to really wake me up to the fact that I needed to change some things in a major way. And was it difficult for you first to acknowledge that you had a problem? Oh, for sure. I mean, I would argue, I would, I think my wife was way more conscious of the changes that she was seeing in me and, and kind of the fact that I was uh, astray and not focused on the right things. And I, I, you know, I was uh, very quick to dismiss her concerns, very quick to rationalize my behavior and my priorities uh, because it's, it's hard to admit that you're wrong. You know, I, I talk, 
I talk a lot about humility and I, I, you know, our first half of the conversation is all about humility. And I, I don't, I was probably the least humble person in my own marriage. And that, that was a major flaw for me. You know, I, I, I was trying to embody humility and teach humility in my, you know, my work, but I, I came home and, you know, the person that I should have been most humble in front of, I was, I was acting like I knew everything and she knew nothing. And, uh, um, she was aware of it. You know, we look at it now and we kind of laugh because we have a very, uh, a very open, uh, beautiful marriage. I mean, I think we've gotten to a point in, in our relationship where we're back to communicating openly and effectively with each other the way that we did when we were like high school sweethearts and we told each other everything and stayed on the phone until, you know, late into the night. Um, you know, we, 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 we now go back and we revisit some of these times during those troubled years. And, um, and I guess we, uh, <laughs> we debrief them. Uh, I'll, I'll make a reference back to kind of the, how we attack problems in the SEAL teams. Uh, and it's been really good for us, you know, to really go back and debrief the bad times so we don't stumble again and not learn from those mistakes. That's outstanding. And, you know, because a lot of um, people in relationship dynamics between the partners, uh, a lot of times people just, you know, don't want to talk about the hard times or just kind of glad that they're over. But when you don't debrief those, you may just repeat those. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I was in that, I was in that vicious cycle for five years, you oh. know, post-transition, you know, just yeah. thinking that I knew it all. I had the plan and mm. I was executing on it. And, you know, little did I know I was way, I was way off and I was on the wrong path. And you were actually dealing with depression at that time, right? That was uh, what you were told that, you know, was happening. Yeah. I mean, they, they framed it uh, as such. Uh, and I didn't, I, I guess I didn't identify as being depressed, but I was really flat. I didn't feel um, that's the best way I could describe it. You know, and I think anybody out there that's been in that frame of mind and has experienced depression um, is you can understand that it's, I think the lack of feeling is almost worse than feeling deep sadness. I mean, I think I've, I've probably blossomed and healed more because I've been able to embrace grief and sadness and express that. So, you know, the, the stereotypical description of, of a depressed person is like, you know, somebody that's emotional and crying and sad, but I don't know. I think the scarier you know, kind of version of, of, of that depressed person is somebody that's just flat and doesn't have the ability to feel that grief. Right. I, 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 I've cried more in the last, you know, two years, just kind of, you know, addressing deep rooted grief and loss, uh, than I, than I had in the previous 15 years. Superhumanize. And you had some uh, transformative experiences on your journey of healing. I, I uh, remember uh, learning that you went down a few different paths uh, with regards to therapy. Mm -hmm. But the one thing that really was transformative for you was the experience uh, with a compound called Ibogaine derived yes. other from the iboga plant and this is a psychoactive substance um, that from what i've heard is one of the strongest plant medicines on the planet 
And uh, the compound ibogaine is currently also getting attention via international clinical studies. It's a powerful treatment for many different uh, conditions, addiction, uh, but also other issues such as depression um, and um, PTSD and many others. But I'd love to hear from Mm -hmm. you how you actually became aware of this possibility and how how this experience was for you? Um, well, it was uh, transformative to say the least. Uh, I, <laughs> I never in a million years would have thought that I would, uh, you know, take a psychedelic, a plant medicine. Um, I, my entire life, I, I didn't really, I didn't never smoked. Uh, I didn't dip or chew tobacco, which is crazy being in the military. I mean, that's like, you know, it goes hand in hand. Um, I wasn't a heavy drinker, but I would say, I will say that I uh, noticed, especially post-transition, uh, I was drinking regularly. And I think that kind of accelerated uh, as I was kind of going down this unfulfilling path. And uh, so I, I only say that because, you know, it's not like I was somebody that was open to uh, any type of drug use. Uh, I never had done an illicit drug and, uh, uh, I was kind of exposed to the world of psychedelics, uh, initially through Michael Pollan's book. Mm-hmm. Um, and after I interviewed with Tim Ferriss, uh, Tim was uh, gracious to give me that book. Uh, he, I think he had just interviewed Michael and, uh, I read that and then it, you know, it's interesting how things happen. I, I ended up connecting with several friends, that had been touched by that particular modality. Um, you know, had former, been, former team guys as well. Yeah. Former all, uh, kind of former off active duty seals that were, were able to go to, uh, I, I think most of them had gone to Mexico at the time, um, to take Ibogaine. Yes. Uh, and, and that treatment or the grant, uh, was really the opportunity was provided to them by a nonprofit, that a good friend of mine and his wife started, uh, Marcus and Amber Capone. So they started a nonprofit called Veterans Exploring Treatment Solutions or VETS. And I met a handful of guys that had gone through the experience and had, you know, life-changing uh, transformation afterwards. And, uh, you know, I said, <laughs> why not? You know, let's give it a shot. You know, and it, and it wasn't, it wasn't a shoot from the hip type thing. You know, I took it very seriously. Um, you know, any plant medicine, any psychedelic is, is not something that anybody should take lightly. You know, I, I have like absolute reverence for these compounds and experiences. Uh, they can be very heavy, uh, very difficult to, uh, kind of digest and, you know, if you, if you don't go into it with the right mindset and the right preparation and with the right people, you know, you, you may be doing more harm to yourself. So I, I took it very seriously. I, I started to meditate as uh, a preparation. I, um, journaled, I was, you know, I, with Ibogaine in particular, there's a lot of protocol, uh, you know, blood work and uh, EKG mm-hmm. that needs to happen mm-hmm. beforehand. So it was a very methodical, well thought out process to go into it. And uh, yeah, the experience for me was, was amazing. You know, it's forever changed me and it's galvanized 
some things in my life that I will keep as part of my life forever. Um, and, you know, no one can ever take away the memories of the experience. And I think that's, you know, as people ask if, you know, you ever, you know, you ever lose what you've experienced or does it ever fade the experience that you go through when it comes to plant medicine, um, you know, Ibogaine or any of, of these uh, molecules. And my answer is, is typically, well, it's up to you. You know, you have those memories. Uh, you have the ability to galvanize change afterwards and put things into motion in your life that are healthy and and are going to allow you to prosper and live this fuller life. But it's your decision. You know, you could at the same time, you know, blow it off, you know, fall back into bad behaviors, bad thought patterns, uh, surround yourself with people that aren't going to uh, challenge you to be a better person or help you, you know, stay on that path. And, uh, you know, I'm very fortunate to be surrounded by a group of loving friends and family uh, you know, some of which that have gone through, you know, uh, a plant medicine experience and a lot of uh, which that have not. And, you know, I think it's, it's all about kind of what you do afterwards and who you surround yourself with that makes all the difference in the world. 100%. Uh, how you go into it, as you just mentioned, is crucial, especially if you're dealing with very strong compounds such as ibogaine, because there is a potential risk for uh, cardiac um, mm -hmm. problems. So you want to make sure you do it the right way and check everything up. And yeah, reverence is really, really important. These are powerful medicines. I personally am so glad that they're now also getting studied across mm -hmm. the world in order to not just uh, mask or relieve symptoms, but to go at the root of many of the issues uh, human beings are yeah. dealing with, whether it's psychologically, physically, or spiritually. And um, for you, what was the immediate effect that you felt and also long-term specifically with Ibogaine? Yeah. I mean, I mean, immediate, I, uh, <laughs> benefits as far as I, you know, my personal experience. I mean, and this is something that is being studied to, uh, you know, through an, or, you know, organizations like vets, you know, vets is about to do a, a study with Stanford, mm -hmm. um, you know, to, to focus specifically on Ibogaine and, uh, its impact on, uh, brain inflammation, yeah. you know, focused on, you know, we talk about MTBI as kind of the root cause for a lot of the symptoms in veterans, like the, the impact of blast injury, mm. which is now being connected deeply with, with, you know, kind of the spike in suicide yeah. um, and just mental health issues. So I, I felt, I mean, I felt different physically, you know, I felt like it was a very cleansing kind of uh, experience, you know, um, you know, physically my body felt better. I, I felt like I could do things that I, I couldn't do before, which is insane. Uh, I, you know, I tell people this and I'm, I, I, I always am a, a little bit hesitant to even bring it up, but, um, you know, I'm an avid climber. Uh, I know how I perform. I have a home wall and I have, uh, I have set problems and set movements and I know what I can do and where I've had problems because of injuries and that. And, I, there's definitely some movement patterns that came back. Uh, I felt like my, it was like a retuning of my nervous system, uh, in essence. And I, I don't have any of the science right now to back that up. And, uh, you know, but I can tell you that I, I definitely felt a difference, 
Um, I felt very detoxed. I felt um, healthier. And I think from a, you know, a mental standpoint, I just had, I had clarity. Um, I was, you know, the experience offered me an opportunity to look at my life from a different perspective and, and really, you know, I got to debrief my life, <laughs> which is, which is an incredible thing. And it's, uh, it's ineffable. It's very difficult to really put it to words and do it justice. But, you know, I was able to see things in my life, past experiences uh, from a third person perspective and, and really identify things that I didn't even know I was blind to. They were blind spots in my life. And I was able to make course corrections uh, in relationships that you know, I may have never really course corrected and it, and it could have led to a lot of heartbreak and a lot of, uh, you know, bad things, uh, you know, happening in my life later on down the road. Um, so I, I was able to kind of have that clarity, you know, address things with my wife, um, you know, prioritize my kids even more, uh, you know, focus on friendships that maybe I had let, uh, atrophy. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I really have since that experience galvanized things, you know, my own personal accountability to things that are going to keep me on the path forever, like meditation, uh, incorporating breath work, you know, diet, uh, you know, diet and exercise, which has always been, they've always been important to me, but really finding ways to, to kind of do those things so I can do them for the longest period of time possible and not further destroy my body. Mm -hmm. And, um, you'll find out, find ways to incorporate, you know, that into my life without neglecting, you know, my kids and my wife and making sure that I'm accountable to them and giving them the appropriate amount of time. So it's, it was just a, a launch point for me in so many ways to set me on this path and then at least give me the shot to, to kind of galvanize that stuff. Uh, so it's long-term and it's not just this short-term spike in, in improvement. And then I'm going to fall off again in a few months. Superhumanize. All the things you've just talked about, it sounds like there's a, a, a undercurrent that is love, you know, with regards mm -hmm. to the relationships, the friendships in your life, the relationship to your own body and health. And um, I hear that a lot when I talk, to people that have tried different plant medicines, psychedelics, that this love is a very, very big mm -hmm. theme. So for people who are listening to this and considering uh, plant medicines, obviously where they can do them safely and legally, right. but that may be concerned about losing their warrior edge, <laughs> you have to say to them. <laughs> I mean, I, I tell you that I... I am still a warrior. Uh, I'm still the same person that I was before. I mean, if anything, I'm, I'm more me now than I was for the last 10 years. You know, I, I think I, I think I changed for the worse for the last decade, you know, and a lot of those, you know, the things that I've already discussed today, you know, not prioritizing the things that really matter in life. And, you know, I, I, my wife told me, I mean, outside perspective, me coming back, uh, from Costa Rica, having done Ibogaine, you know, she told me in the following weeks that I was more like the person that she started dating when we were seniors in high school than I had been in our entire relationship. 
you know, kind of after that, you know, she watched me change gradually and she could see the change from afar where I'm, I was looking at, you know, myself, you know, every single day, but from, you know, six inches and, and I, I couldn't even realize the changes that had occurred in me over time while, um, I was training and deploying and transitioning out of the military. So to be able to, uh, you know, have her tell me that, I mean, that was proof for me, you know, it's it, that she had somebody back in her life that she had lost. And I would tell people that, you know, you're not going to change, uh, you know, I, I, you're not going to change for, for the worse. You're going to change for the better. If you put the time and attention that needs to go into these experiences, if you take the time beforehand, um, you submit to being vulnerable, um, not being too good for therapy, not being too good for meditation and journaling and, and really open yourself up to possibilities and uh, to support, you know, lean on other people. Don't think that you have to go at it on your own. I mean, this is one of those, this is one of those times in your life where you, you need to just trust that, you know, it's okay to ask for help and yeah. allow people to help you. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a huge thing. I, I know for myself, that was a big thing to learn to, to be open, be vulnerable and just ask for help and seek it out when you need it. And yeah, not be, be strong about it at the same time too. It's okay. It's okay yeah. to be vulnerable. It's okay to have problems and it's okay to work on them. Yeah. Um, I find fascinating that you mentioned uh, within the context of your, uh, I have a gain experience that you feel that it made you excel also physically um, and especially with regards to rock climbing, which I don't know much about. I've never tried it, <laughs> but, but I have friends who, who do it, who love it. And uh, I do understand that it's, it's very uh, intricate and complex physically, mentally, um, it's, it's something that really also not just trains your physical strength, but also your mind. And you've been doing that even before you uh, started your military career, right? You were building walls and climbing on them, different places you were stationed. That's something that always, that's like went through your life. Yeah. Well, so really at school, when I was at the Naval Academy, I got exposed to rock climbing by an upperclassman. And again, like being a SEAL, it just kind of, uh, surfaced in my life as a, uh, a pursuit of passion. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it was, but there's something about climbing where I just needed to be, I need, I needed to be sneaking off the Naval Academy when I shouldn't have been off the yard, uh, to go to a climbing gym instead of going <laughs> to the bar. And, uh, I just, I just really gravitated to it. So I, I did build walls all over the world in different areas we were deployed and uh, climbing has been an absolute godsend for me. It, it puts me outside, uh, which in and of itself is an amazing way to make yourself feel better. Mm -hmm. And I, I appreciate the challenge. I appreciate the ability to apply myself fully to something yet, you know, endlessly pursue perfection that will never surface. And uh, yeah, it's been amazing. I mean, and I, I would tell you that uh, I think the way that I've grown the most as a climber uh, and in no way am I going to frame Ibogaine as a performance enhancing drug for sport. <laughs> like, it is a, it is absolutely a, uh, call it, I, I would call it kind of a last ditch effort, kind of like a heavy gun. It's like the nuclear option for, uh, you know, kind of psychedelic therapy. I mean, we, 
in the veteran community and namely, you know, my experience in the SEAL community, um, the reason, you know, our guys are seeing so much benefit, I think, is probably because of the blast injury. Um, you know, we're pursuing it to see because we've seen change and all these guys are coming back with concussive injury. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Ibogaine experience seems to uh, have effects. I mean, outside of the spiritual effects, you know, the physical effects on inflammation in the brain, uh, you know, we think could be a major reason why it's having such a profound effect on our community. But I, but I will say that my, uh, I think I'm a little bit more self-compassionate as a climber. I, I was very hard on myself. I mean, almost like I, you know, relentlessly would just be upset with myself and upset with my performance. If I didn't accomplish goals or I didn't perform well as a climber, uh, I think I've been much better and I have more perspective about, you know, kind of being kind to myself, uh, mm-hmm. being okay, being better, uh, with kind of lackluster performance or just not feeling good on a certain day and having better, a better mindset overall. So I think my, uh, the big takeaway and kind of the big performance benefit for me has just been my ability to, to create distance and have perspective so I can be more introspective and really, um, you know, really enjoy, you know, continue to enjoy something that I've been passionate about and love my entire life. Instead of beating yourself up and that would have a direct influence on uh, performing better also. For sure. Yeah. It's funny when you do that, you think that if you're just gonna, if you're just grinding on yourself and hard on yourself all the time, mandating performance, you're going to perform better. And it's not the case. Like it really just starts to beat you down. Mm. Um, you know, self-love and self-compassion is something that I struggled with immensely and I'm working on it. And I'm, I think it's something that has definitely elevated my performance, you know, takes a lot of the pressure off, you know, and allows me to perform at a higher level because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm back to doing it because I love doing it. Not because I feel like I have to do it to perform better. Right. And uh, what I love about your life's trajectory is you also, as an entrepreneur, strive to help others perform better. I mentioned it before, you're the co-founder and CEO of Protect, and you have some really intriguing products. You focus a lot (laughs) on supplement powders and also sunscreen. I would like to learn a little bit more about your philosophy and why, for example, you chose a strong focus on powders. Well, so we, we actually have a, we have a liquid uh, pack. So we, we built the company around so like the mindset of like, hey, being outside is like the best thing you can do for yourself. You know, it's like a huge benefit for me personally climbing. So we wanted to provide people foundational products that help to galvanize routines that'll put them outside uh, to be a better version of themselves, physically, mentally, spiritually. And we have a, a, a line now of liquid packs that are meant to be added to water. Uh, so I, I personally have seen a lot of benefit from staying hydrated, like actually hydrated, not just drinking more water, but drinking water with the right things in it. And uh, our our lineup is really geared to get people to drink more water, make uh, drinking water more fun, uh, and at the same time provide people some foundational nutrition in their water that's going to help to optimize baseline health. You know, nothing crazy, but you know, keep it simple, 
stupid is but a mantra that was you know beat into me in the in the military and we're trying to keep that simplistic approach alive at protect and you know beyond kind of the the phys- benefits in physical performance uh and and mental health i you know i i notice specifically that better hydration has led me to better sleep mm-hmm. and you know the the better my sleep is the better i perform the happier i am the more loving and caring and compassionate i am and you know i, I blossom spiritually and uh that's something that we're really focused on is so better hydration better sleep and and really helping people to to build the habits that are going to lead to those superhumanize and these are foundational i mean being hydrated most of us forget to hydrate or we don't hydrate with high quality water or drinks and a lot of the tap water that comes uh, that we get here in the United States unfortunately you know the molecular structure of course of the water isn't optimal and then it's full of fluoride and fluorine and god knows what Um, but and also sleep you had uh, sleep you of course are familiar um, in your past career with sleep deprivation and Mm -hmm. I also uh, heard that you didn't dream for decades right yeah (laughs) <laughs> it's an indication, I guess. I mean, if you're not dreaming, you're not getting restful sleep, right? right. I mean, that, that's what I've heard now. Yeah, I think you're missing out on your REM sleep. I'm just on the deep uh, phases of sleep. And so what turned that around for you? That How did you get better sleep habits? And do you have some sleep hacks you can share with us? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, a- after I, I had my Ibogaine experience, uh, it was kind of like a reset button for my mm-hmm. brain and my circadian rhythm. I, I noticed that I, I definitely started sleeping better. And not, it doesn't happen for all people, but for me, it was a profound reset. And, you know, and that doesn't last forever. It, like, again, it gave me the window of opportunity to start to really hammer home some new routines. And uh, I really stepped up my hydration game you know, I, I try to drink 96 plus ounces of water a day with the right mix of electrolytes. I try to go to bed at a reasonable hour. I try to cut out the light, you know, after nine to 10 o'clock at night, uh, ideally be in bed by that point. And I guess recently, you know, I am a massive fan of contrast therapy. Uh, I, I finally got a sauna. So I have like my own little uh, biohacker gym in my garage. I have a uh, three-person sauna. So it's an almost heaven uh, with like the six kilowatt Harvia heater. So it's not an IR. It's like the straight up, like, you know, dry sauna. Yeah. So it gets very hot. So I've been, I've been cooking at night for like 15 (laughs) to 20 minutes uh, north of 200, 210. And then uh, I I opted for the deep freezer conversion, um, though I do have a couple uh, people that I know that make some really awesome kind of like filtrated cold plunges. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a friend up in Orange County, uh, Renew. He makes a beautiful one, but it was a little bit uh, steep on the price for me. But I the deep freezer has been great. I converted a big chest freezer and I've been doing that like on a daily practice. So, so tell me how you do it. You, um, how many different, so you do the, uh, sauna and then the deep freezer and then the sauna again, the deep freezer. How, what are, is the time and, uh, how, yeah, I'd like yeah. to know more. So I, I'm learning, right. So like, uh, I'm using myself as the test subject, uh, you know, trying to perfect the protocol. Cause you hear a lot, but I, you know, the one thing I did here is like if 15 to 20 minutes, you know, 
And I, the temperature kind of, uh, I've heard some variants. They said anything in like the 170 to 190 range is is mm-hmm. good. Uh, I've been going hotter just because I like it. it. It tests me. It's a little bit of a grit thing. Like yeah. I, I sit in meditation for 20 minutes and the thing can be cranked up to 220, 230. And like, I'm, you know, it, for me, it's a really good centering experience. Uh, and then after that, I, I will go into the, you know, my cold plunge is set about 37, 38 degrees and I'll sit for five minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have been doing four, seven, eight box breathing, like, uh, or like breath work. So I usually get through about 12 cycles of that. And that's in and around five minutes. And then I will go back. If it's at night, I'll go back in and I treat myself to a sauna rewarm. Uh, so I'll go back and I'll sit, you know, in the sauna for another five, 10, 15 minutes, depending on where I'm at. And if I, and if I have time, I'll do a, a couple cycles of that, or I'll just call it at that. And then this is the one that like my buddies, like give me uh, a lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of criticism over the, I, I in the morning, I do a, a just a cold bore. Uh, I go into the garage and I uh, sit in the ice for five minutes. So no sauna, just cold therapy. And the, the beautiful thing is I'll, I, I do the cold and I get, I get really cold and then get out and I go into my yard and like, we've lived in our house since t- 2009. So I've been there for a while and I never realized how beautiful our morning sunlight is in the backyard. Like I never would go outside. I never sat in the sun. I never got morning light. And I have been doing a natural rewarm sitting on my deck, letting the sun hit me. I'm in my shorts. You know, it's it's not cold in San Diego, but in the morning it's like, you know, 55 degrees. Um, but it feels brilliant, you know, just to be able to stand in the sun, let the sun hit my body uh, warm my body up. You know, it's, it's, it's like a continued meditation, you know, that I'm doing, uh, kind of post cold therapy, post morning sit, post stretching. It's, it's just been a wonderful thing. So I will tell you that that has, uh, that's probably done wonders for my sleep. Um, and I just enjoy doing it. It's just a wonderful thing to look forward to every day. Excellent. And another side effect of enjoying the morning sun is, of course, you get the direct sunlight into your eyes, which also does something to our brain, to our body chemistry, and sets us up very differently for the day. I love it. I have an infrared sauna at home that I... I, I love, but, um, you know, I'm maybe take a cold shower or ice baths once in a while, but I like your setup. I need to look into that. <laughs> Just go for oh, it. <laughs> if you ever make it down to San Diego, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll have you over. I'll let you experience it. I'd love that. I'd probably, <laughs> I'd probably be squealing and screaming. I hope your neighbors can stand that, <laughs> because, but I, know, I would love to try it. I, I like that a lot. And you've already shared so much with us from the meditation, of course, to the, um, hot, cold, therapy, uh, because there's something I I love to ask every guest that I talk to, and that's the practices that most profoundly affected them in a positive way, mentally, spiritually, and physically. So you've already shared two of those with us. Is there something else you'd like to share? Oh, man. I mean, I mean, I could tell you that time with my kids is like the most amazing thing ever. Uh, And I know that's like the cliche answer that every parent gives. But you know, when it comes down to it, the only truth in this world is love. And, you know, the love that I have for my children is like the most profound manifestation of like pure love. And, uh, I, I love it. I mean, I, I love it. My, uh, you know, spending time with my kids really, you know, carving time out, being very deliberate about the time that I spend with them, 
And I work on that every single day. You know, I'm not perfect. We get busy in our lives and it's very easy to to want to just be focused on emails and text messages and phone calls and social media and all the other stuff. Uh, but I, you know, I, I think that's the thing that comes up in my meditations more than anything else is just, you know, have you spent good quality time with, with both, uh, you know, my, my son and my daughter. And, uh, I ask myself that question every single day. And I, uh, I think I'll be asking myself that question till the day that I die. Oh, that's a beautiful, Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And yeah, we sometimes it's it's wonderful that you're so conscious about nurturing the love. You know, sometimes it's not even that we take it for granted, but life just gets in the way, routines get in the way, and to become aware of that, what a gift uh, for your loved ones and <laughs> for yourself. Yeah. No, it's a blessing. So yeah, that's that's something that I'm. And and you know, if you're not a parent, I mean, there's there's people. Everybody has people in their life that love them. And, and are looking for their love. So, you know, just finding that, finding that uh, relationship and embracing it and really pour yourself into it. Because, I mean, I can tell you when it, when it comes down to it, you know, th that's the stuff that matters, you know, everything else we're doing is, is just ancillary to that. That's a wonderful message and semi last word for this beautiful conversation but before uh we uh stop talking i'd love for you to let us know first of all where can people connect with you and also what's next for you oh man uh so i'm on instagram um nick underscore norris 1981 or something of the sort and uh uh at protect life is our company's instagram so we got we got a lean and mean team, so you can always get a hold of me there. And what's next for me? I mean, I, you know, I love having these conversations. Uh, I love having people reach out to me. I love connecting with people that are struggling or are flourishing because, you know, of maybe something that I said. And uh, you know, I, if I could do more of that, Ariana, I would. I mean, I I would give up everything else professionally uh, just to be able to do that. I mean, I. I, I'm going to pour my heart and soul into the nonprofit work that I'm doing with both C4 Foundation and then with Vets. Um, there's a lot going on in the world uh, on the psychedelic-assisted therapy front, and I guess really applying myself to to making sure that those medicines come to people the right way, uh, that we're responsible in in our use of those, we're reverent. Um, you know, we're finding ways to be more sustainable with them. I mean, my good friend, Tim Ferriss, put a wonderful piece out specifically uh, talking about Ibogaine and 5-MeO-DMT and some of the unsustainable practices. So I think really pouring uh, my time into vets and, you know, finding ways to support that advocacy for more sustainability and, and really, you know, help people, you know, get, get access to those medicines, um, in the right way with the right support, uh, to just be able to live fuller, you know, more rewarding, more loving lives. Outstanding. And I'll make sure to, uh, uh, put everything you said into the show notes, uh, Nick, you're a true leader and healer. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. And I'm very, very grateful mm -hmm. you made time for me today. Oh, it's a blessing to meet you and, and share this conversation. So the pleasure's all mine.